Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by Techno, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I'm Elliot Zagman, and with me, baby, he can drive your car. It's James Hall. I do like the Beatles. I think that's the the reference. And you know, I don't know if the Beatles yeah. ever said this, but nothing said on this podcast should be construed as investment advice or a solicitation of services. This one in particular, not investment advice. Investing is risky. Speak with, you know, do your own research, actually. Just just do your own research. It's totally worth it. And yeah, check out uh, techno.com forward slash newsletters. Follow us on Twitter. I think we're also on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm James Hull X on All Twitter. Uh, James Hull on LinkedIn. Uh, Elliot. Elliot Zagman. E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N. I'm the only one in the world. Yep. There no it other is. Elliot Zagmans out there. At least as far as I'm, as far as I know. Unless some, some, some jerk with the last name of Zagman wants to name their kid Elliot and they better not. Um, I think the Beatles actually, you should not take investment advice from the Beatles because, I mean, they made a, a lot of really <laughs> bad investment moves. Like they, uh, Apple Records was a huge, a huge mess up. It was a huge, you know, cluster F, right? And they lost a ton of money on that. Apparently, also they, like the, the, the tax situation in Britain in the mid sixties was kind of nuts. It, you know, tax man mm. was, was written because basically, um, maybe they just had a bad accountant or something, but they, the British government was taking like 99% of their, their income. Yeah. Something like that. I just, this outrageous number. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. But that's also why, you know how, um, we're getting into the, the, the classic rock weeds here, but I'm a big Rolling Stones fan as well. And Exile on Main Street, which was written or which was recorded in 1971, 1972. The reason why they were, they called it Exile is because they were actually in the south of France because they were basically an exile from Britain because they didn't want to pay taxes. That's a little interesting factoid. But yeah, also the interesting. Very Paul McCartney ended up selling a bunch of his rights to Beatles songs to Michael Jackson because he was in all this financial trouble. Anyways, so there's, I could, maybe I should start a, a wow. classic rock podcast. Anyways, uh, yeah, today joining us, uh, the reason why I said James could drive your car is, um, cause we have Tu Lee, managing director of Sino Auto Insights and automotive mobility consultancy based in Beijing, joining us to talk about EVs in China. Uh, I think it's a really, really interesting space. Just a whole lot of volatility going on. And I think it's, if it really can kind of encapsulate so much that is, is cool and different and also kind of screwed up <laughs> about kind of the China's economy and tech space. And it's just, um, it's really cool. I, I, I really like China's yeah. EV space. Um, and, 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 and is really and smart Tuli, too. Tuli, yeah, Tuli knows his stuff. So yeah, let's get to it, right? Yeah. Tu Li from uh, Sino Auto Insights. Joining us today is Tu Li. He is managing director at Sino Auto Insights, an automotive and mobility consultancy based in Beijing. Tu, thanks for joining us. Hey guys, how are you doing? Hey Tu, doing good. Good, I'm good. So I, 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 I'm really glad to be talking about EVs because I find it to be such the EV business to be such a great kind of. Um, like Ch the Chinese economy in a nutshell or China tech in a nutshell in a lot of ways, because it, it, it's kind of, you see the best and the worst 
in uh, kind of China's more state-directed model, right? So we've seen this this massive expansion in in EVs, and then now we're seeing this very very rapid contraction. So so can can you tell us a little bit about how we got here and 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 what's happening right now in the EV space in China? Sure. So I think to kind of get an idea of scale, there's currently over 350 million vehicles on the road in China. And so that's created a lot of traffic in the major cities and quite a bit of pollution. And so back in 2009, the Chinese government decided to try to incentivize individuals and local governments in purchasing cleaner energy vehicles, battery electric, plug-in hybrids. And so they created programs to incentivize local governments to replace their ICEs or internal combustion engine vehicles with electric vehicles. And they they moved out out to the public with large subsidies that were given to the automakers when they sold electric vehicles. Depending on the price, it could be 60,000 for a battery electric vehicle and 50,000 for a plug-in hybrid. And that created basically a base of zero, going from zero sales to now in 2018, 1.2 million NEVs. So loosely categorized battery electric plug-in hybrids and yeah, so battery electric and plug-in hybrids are, are included in that category. Yeah, I, I remember just it, as soon as just or as, as recently as just a couple of years ago, you know, I was trying to to kind of I was working for a company that that had focused on EVs, and I was trying to figure out like hey, how many how many electric vehicle companies are there in China, and seeing some something like some ridiculous number like three or four hundred. It seems like everyone and their brother was was starting an EV company, even if they didn't know much about cars, right? And uh, so, how did how did they get to to this point? And and what are we seeing? Why are we seeing this contraction now? Like, what were these subsidies that were involved? And and when did they go away? And and how are how are how has that impacted the dynamic? Okay, so last year China sold twenty eight million vehicles. Uh, or China bought 28 million vehicles. So it's the largest vehicle market in the world. U.S. is second. Last year they sold about, or they bought about 17 million vehicles. So it's the largest market for most of the players that are here, GM, Volkswagen, and a lot of the local domestic players. So when the subsidies came from the Chinese government, the VC saw an opportunity and hence this proliferation of over 400 EV companies over the last five years that started up. And so there's a lot of uh, free money available. And most of these companies are going to go away pretty much because of the consolidations. But it uh, created this frenzy of, of, of uh, excitement in the EV sector. But I think the misnomer that a lot of people had is uh, mistakenly identifying them as tech companies as opposed to car companies. And so uh, one of the big things that I don't think gets a lot of play is the fact that these traditional car companies, these OEMs, have been in business for over 100 years. And so they've been able to establish their brand. And so there's probably a handful or six or seven Chinese EV companies that you, you're familiar with. Neo, Faraday Future, Byton, WM Motor, and uh, Xiaopeng. Okay, so they've literally opened their doors in 2014 and 2015 and launched products within the last 12 to 14 months. So they had, they've had no opportunity to educate the consumer on their product or their brand, their features, and, and what they're all about. And 
people were willing to still purchase electric vehicles despite not having familiarity with some of these brands if there was a discount associated with that. But due to the trade war, because the overall market is down for 17 consecutive months and subsidies were taken away, 60% of the subsidies of the 15,000 and 60,000 RMV subsidies were actually reduced in June of 2019. And so that's when you saw the EV market specifically starting to contract. And that's putting pressure on these 400 uh, electric vehicle companies now because they're struggling to not only raise money because VCs have left the market because now they're moving on to the next newest sector or the next newest um, business model and they're left to fend for themselves. And if they're going to get money, it's probably at a lower valuation, which they don't want to do. And so you said you brought up uh, VCs and, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a, I just pulled up a chart of mm-hmm. Tesla's stock price uh, going back to 2010. I mean, it was trading up to like Q1 2013. It was basically below $50. And then it just shot up to almost 200 in 2013, past 200 in 2014. And it, and you said these companies opened their doors in 2014 and 15. I wonder, like, was Tesla maybe like proving to some of these VCs that funded these guys and some of the entrepreneurs that like this was even doable? I mean, starting a company and being able to sell cars. When you buy a car, right, you want the, right. the manufacturer to be around, you know, mm-hmm. five, six, seven years down the road to fix the vehicle, right? You got to service it or, you know, service the warranty or whatever. Like, was that, do you think that had a little bit of impact uh, on the market in China? I think the newness of having an electric vehicle wore off. And this is where a lot of the marketing comes in, right? And I think uh, China in general, uh, they're still not able to create very much differentiation between brands in a, in a segment or in a vertical. And so I think that played against them. And it's only going to get worse because Volkswagen and General Motors, uh, Ford, uh, some of the more established brands, they're launching EVs and they're putting a lot of marketing dollars behind that in the next 18 months. Not to mention, uh, you had, you had mentioned Tesla. One of the big reasons Tesla stock price is up is because they went from a niche, I'm selling 80,000 units, 70,000 units annually to introducing the Model 3, which doubled their volume in a year's time or mm. 18 months' time. And now that they have built a locally a, a local Shanghai Gigafactory, they could double again their, or their volume in no time within 18 yeah. months. They've established that brand, and now they're really expanding that capacity on that brand. And a lot of these, these, these Chinese companies, most of them haven't gotten that first, gotten to the brand establishment in the first place, and those who have had a brand establishment, now they need money, they need capital to expand that capacity, and that's a tricky thing, it does seem. But let, let's talk a little bit more about those those brands and those players that are you know competing. Uh, so if we look at a, at a pyramid here, right, and we have kind of the really low-end players, the cheap end at the bottom, the, the middle, and then the top, where are the, in China, where is... Where are the, the local Chinese players and where are the foreign players when it comes to that pyramid? And how should, how should we think about them? Okay, so in the bottom rung, it's going to be most of the, the uh, 
the local domestic players. So the BAIC, the BYD, the Geelys, uh, some of, so let me take a step back. BYD and Geely, they're, they're the only privately owned Chinese car companies. Everything else is an SOE. So SAIC, you know, GAC, they're all partly owned by the government. So BYD is, um, I think it's over 20% owned by Warren Buffett. Okay. And they originally made batteries and they moved into the, the, the vehicle sector because they saw an opportunity. They're going to be placed at the bottom of the pyramid. And their price points are between probably 12,000 U.S., the equivalent of 12,000 U.S. and 20,000 U.S. And then we get into the meat of the market where the Volkswagens and the GMs and the Fords and the Toyotas and the Hondas traditionally play. Now, if we swap those ICEs out with EVs, their price points are going to be between twenty-five and $50,000. And that's where the bulk of the market is going to be. So that's going to be a big, big portion of the pyramid. And then the higher end of the pyramid, that's where Tesla is, and that's where Audi's going to play, and that's where Porsche is going to play, and that's between seventy-five and a hundred thousand dollars. And at the tiny tip, there's the Bentleys and some of the um, the the large ultra luxury players, the Maybach type Mercedes Benz players. So they're all you you name it, every brand that I've mentioned, they're going to be rolling out if they haven't already an EV, a hybrid within the next eighteen months. And so they see a huge opportunity because the Chinese government is still fully on board due to the new regulations they released or the new policy they released last week. They're, they're still completely, despite the hiccup in the last 18 months in the automotive sector, they're still going all in on EVs and um, alternate vehicle, alternate energy vehicles. It, so when when we have that pyramid, it does seem like so the the top of the pyramid is you know your 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 mostly German cars um you know the or the the Italian the the kind of exotic stuff right and then you have like the the upper middle right which is the Audis or the the Tesla then you have kind of the lower middle which is your your Hondas or or whatnot and then you have the bottom tier which is really where a lot of these Chinese, these larger Chinese firms have really thrived, right? So you mentioned right. BYD, you know, Shenzhen, all of Shenzhen's taxi fleet is all BYD, right? Yep. It's, it's all BYD electric vehicles. And we've seen BYD buses kind of, they're, they're pretty successful electric buses all around the world. But it's still quite low, low end, right? They, they, they can do this, right? They can make it. The reason why Shenzhen can use their taxis is because they're cheap cars. Right. And, and the reason why their buses are appealing is because they're low cost, right? They have quality issues, but they, they can make it at a low cost. Now, when, it, when we go up that pyramid, we have these other companies. A lot of them we might consider tech companies. They've been backed by your Tencent or your Alibaba. There's Neo, there's Xiaopeng or Xpeng, and you mentioned WM, which I don't know quite as much about. You can, you can tell us uh, a little bit more, but tell us more about these firms that are trying to, they're trying to establish a brand higher up on the pyramid. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the ultimate target is Tesla. Because they've created this brand, and I and and I equate it to the EV companies that are out there right now, Neo in particular, and Byton, uh, which is going to be launching a vehicle. They just uh, opened a manufacturing site in Nanjing, and they should be launching later in 2020, unless there are any further delays. And it wouldn't surprise me if there are, because of the amount of capital that they've exhausted and how the market's reacting currently to fundraising and how much more difficult it is. 
their price points are going to be closer to what the Model X is. Okay, so the Model X in China sells for about $150,000. Byton and Neo on their uh, larger SUVs, they're probably going to be closer to the $70,000, $90,000 range, depend, depending on options. And it's a blessing and a curse because Tesla, again, we still think of them as a, as a newer OEM or a new car company, but they're 16 years old. And so they've gotten 16 years to really reinforce their brand. And because Elon Musk is the CEO, the Chinese love Elon Musk. He's like the Steve Jobs. The Chinese love Steve Jobs. Um, he's a dynamic leader, an entrepreneur. And I think that really, really resonates with the Chinese people. And Tesla is an aspirational brand. Neo, Byton. Those companies, they're trying to become that, but it's very difficult to do in your fir- with your first product uh, with limited sales, right? Because the first thing that car companies do when they're panicked is to discount their vehicle to sell more value. But that, that does so many bad things. It, it reduces the residual value. It kind of just tarnishes the brand because now we need incentives to sell. And so um, Tesla... They started out on the high end, but with the Model 3 and the upcoming Model Y, which is a smaller version of the SUV, uh, I think that are going to have price points closer to the $50,000, $60,000 range where more Chinese are going to be able to afford them. That's where I think these EV startups are going to have a tough time, whether they're selling at $30,000 or fifty dollars or $60,000, because Tesla is the established 800-pound gorilla and People still want to have a Tesla because there's hundreds of thousands of them already on the road. They're battle tested. They still might have qualities, but uh, quality issues, but it's a known thing as opposed to these new startups who are really launching vehicles that'll take 12, 18, 24 months before you really determine the quality level of these cars. It, it reminds me a little like smartphones. You know, back in like 2012, 2013, you, know, you had. You know, Steve, Steve Jobs was this, this icon. You know, Apple was, was such an, it still is an iconic brand, but it was something that, you know, people wanted an iPhone. So you would see these folks that were, you know, they could have bought a Huawei for a lot less money. They could have bought a Samsung or an HTC or whatever, but they'd be spending, they'd spend, uh, you know, way more money, uh, oftentimes an entire month's salary uh, or even more on buying an iPhone. And I was always like in, in Beijing at the time. I would see these people on the on the bus. I'd be like, "This this girl probably makes like five thousand dollars a month, and or five thousand RMB a month, and she's you know spending all that on a on an iPhone." But it, it, it does seem like like that's a little bit of the case with Tesla this time, right? That that there is this that Tesla has that brand, they have that kind of allure, and that maybe, you know, a few years down the road, the way we'll see something like we see now, where, you know, the Chinese competitors like Huawei makes makes the phone that's as good as an iPhone, and a lot of people in China, you know, they, they, they'd prefer that. But for now, Tesla really has that that first step. But let's talk a little bit more about about these companies, particularly Neo. So Neo is listed in the U.S. Um, and they've had a really hard, their stock has been hit. There's been rumors of bankruptcy, rumors of a take of that they're kind of primed for a takeover. What's happening with Neo? Can you tell us a little bit more about just what this company is, what they're kind of aiming to do and, and where they're, where they've been stumbling or where they've had trouble with that? Yeah. So, uh, with Neo, it's a, it's, 
pretty much just simple dollars and cents thing because I, I believe just looking at the vehicles, they seem pretty nice, right? I've sit, sat in one, I've driven in a couple. Uh, I don't see any major issues from a design standpoint, but they IPO'd early. And so they went to the capital markets quite early, actually, when I, when they probably could have uh, raised a few more rounds of capital. And there's these decisions that need to be made prior to actually launching the vehicle. Is it I'm going to outsource and, and, and contract manufacturer making the vehicle or I'm going to create a, or I'm going to uh, create a greenfield site and invest the capital in building my own factory. So they decided to outsource to JAC, uh, which is an established uh, vehicle manufacturer in China. And so with that being said, if you are a contract manufacturer, you probably have stipulations where the MOQ, the minimum order quantity needs to be X. If you don't hit that, you're going to hit, you're going to get penalized. Okay. And I think they targeted in, in the year one about a hundred thousand units in sale for the ES8. They didn't hit that. And so they're getting squeezed both ways, right? Cause top line, they're not able to sell cars. If, if they're selling 2000 units a month, 3000 units a month, it's not even close to, to anywhere, um, to that 100,000 units, right? And so that means that JAC, the plant's running at probably 40, 50, 60% capacity. And so on the, on the cost, on the cost side, they're getting, they're getting squeezed because they probably have to pay premium now for these vehicles that should have been ordered, should have been manufactured. And then on top of that, their overhead was crazy. They had thousands of employees that they probably didn't need. They opened these neo houses that I think this is where, you know, this is one of those Harvard business cases where you could play Monday morning quarterback and say what, what happened, what went wrong. You know, they tried to establish themselves as a lifestyle brand, as a, as a mobile phone on wheels. And I think that just confused consumers. Can you tell, I don't think our listeners uh, maybe are familiar with Neo houses. Could you, could you explain kind of what they are? Oh, uh, sure. So if you can think of an Apple store, Frankenstein together with a Starbucks, you know, combined Uh together with like a Barnes and Noble with ambient music playing, you know, it's just these, these, it's like but a club. An, yeah. for an EV company. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. And they had yeah, dozens crazy. of them across China. And it just, you know, they, they really did well on the marketing side to try to create a positioning. But I think they should have just paid more attention to what customers want, right? Because if your product doesn't resonate, and I don't know, I haven't spoken with anyone in particular at Neo that will tell me specifically what they think is wrong because there's so many things that are challenging to them. But at the end of the day, if you can't get past, if they're not selling 10, 12,000 units a month, then they're definitely not making money. So you're saying they're, they're being squeezed on the top side and that's kind of because the subsidies are being taken away, right? Well, that and they're just not selling enough volume, right? So they're just not generating the revenue. And then on the cost side, I mean, a lot of these contract manufacturers, I've read some contracts for like, uh, Spirit or SPR and, and Boeing. And the way it works for, for them is that if they, if they're hitting quotas, if they're buying, if Boeing's buying enough planes from SPR, the prices go down. Sure. 
And if they buy less, the prices go up. Mm -hmm. And then if they buy less, the prices go up again. And there's like tiers, right? And so what happens is their their margins get squeezed, and that's your that's the same thing that you're talking about, right? Yeah, but I think this is an extreme case where they're probably not even hitting their bottom tier, their bottom ladder, right? Because they're still only selling. Now they have two products. They have an ES8, which is their larger eight seven seat luxury SUV, and the ES6, which is supposed to be a little bit less expensive, but there's a ton of overlap when you add options. So I think, uh, you, know, you know, trying to create positioning between their own products has been seems to be a bit challenging for them too, and they're they're also going to launch a third vehicle now. So I, I don't know how that's going to play in the market because also SUV, uh, also an SUV, but uh, I think a bit more affordable. So now they're going to get more into the the Xiaopeng and WM space. Of the thirty, forty thousand range, as opposed to the fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand range. So at that point in time, that's more of a commodity play than a distinctive, well-positioned product that is able to differentiate itself between the high-end Audi and the Porsche or the Tesla Model X, right? Yeah, and it's a, it's a tough thing because it, in even in contrast with something like a smartphone, if I buy a new smartphone, I I'll take a risk on on a different brand, or a lot of people will, right? Especially if they're already Android users, right? But it, it, they'll spend eight hundred dollars and maybe switch over to a different brand, and then if they don't like it, then in a year or two they switch back, right? But a car is a lot more money than <laughs> than a phone, right? And, and and I think with a lot of these folks, like it's it, it when you when you have the option between a Tesla. And something like a Neo, right? You know what a Tesla is. It has that brand value. I think it's, it is a lot more of a commitment to, to go for that, that kind of untested brand like a Neo. That's, uh, that, that's a tough thing. A you, tough sell, I guess. You make, you make a good point because there's a study, I want to say years and years, 30, 40 years ago. And, um, and then studied Americans. So, but I'm, I'm, I'm extrapolating that out to, to Chinese, the Chinese consumer. There's, Two buys in a person's life. There's two purchases in a person's life that are emotional buys. Everything else is transactional. To your point about the, the phones, they might be more emotional here in China than in the United States. But generally speaking, a home and a car are the two things that are the most expensive purchases that a person normally makes. And they're the emotional buys because you attach your personality, you know, who you are, who you want to be to, to represent you through that vehicle. And so I think. That's one of the issues with uh, these new startups is, first of all, to be fair, they just haven't had that time, right? And I think, and, and this is me kind of reading the tea leaves, I think there was a bit of hubris from some of the CEOs thinking that they just could just go into the automotive market and and sell 100,000 units in whoa, 30 whoa, months. Whoa, 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 are, 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 you, are you saying that a tech CEO had hubris? <laughs> yeah. And... I've, I've, I grew up in Detroit, worked at GM, but also, you know, spent time in Silicon Valley. And then it's, they're both sectors are super cutthroat, but on the automotive side, it takes a ton of capital. Uh, and I think that because of this trade war, because of the lack of funding available, I thought, I think they originally thought that, okay, we could still go back to the, the, the VCs to get more money. And, 
you know, you're two billion in on your first car, right? And in Neo's case, they don't even build it, right? So they don't have a plan. Mm. They don't have any PP&E as an asset on their balance sheet, right? Essentially, they design a car and they give the the planning to to somebody else to manufacture, right? So uh, I think that's a, a major distinction that a lot of people don't take the time to look at either from a cost perspective and an investment standpoint, because literally there's only one or two of these EV startups, WM uh, Motor being one, I uh, visited their plant in Wenzhou, but it's their plant, right? And so if they have any issues or any problems, they've already kind of amortized the cost of that factory on their balance sheet, as opposed to the cost of um, the extra cost, the penalized cost or the penalty cost for not hitting your numbers, that's an OPEX, right? So that hits you every single, mm. every single period. If I could take a little finance lesson. So give a little finance I lesson. I love it. So. I love it. That's yeah. great. Can, yeah. can, can we talk a little bit? <laughs> this is the right podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know this or, or maybe, maybe not. We haven't talked about it, but did Neo kind of help JAC, uh, in, in terms of capital and, and CapEx and building that, that, capacity to build their cars or was it all jac or do we know i uh, i'm guessing here because i don't know but normally in those in those circumstances what jac provides is the the employees um the facility and um the tooling will be funded by and the design of the vehicle will be funded by the the oem or the company because if jac let's say jac um, had quality issues or there are quality issues with the vehicle and it was, and they, you could point back to JAC. The reason that the OEM wants to own that tooling is because they can pull it out quickly and go give it to somebody else and not disturb production so much or, or not, or not uh, reduce production. So uh, I'm assuming that there are escalators and there's clauses in the, the contract that say maybe we own a piece of Neo if you can't hit you know, your annual volume of X or Y. And the, the other thing that Neo needs to concern themselves with is because there are other EV companies, right, that chose not to build their own factory. So, and JAC also has contracts with established and partnerships with established OEMs. I think Ford being one of them. So if Ford decided that they're going to build the Mustang, the E-Mustang here, right? And they were like, JAC, we want you to build it. And we're expecting a volume of 300,000 units. Do you think JAC is going to hold off their capacity that NEO is not actually using and say, no, we can't give you that? Yeah. We're going to hold this off because, you know, we, we are a partner and we're losing our shirt, but you can't have that. Depends on those termination no, clauses. Neo, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so there's there's a huge or a huge risk with Neo long term if they're still not able to increase their volume substantially so, that JAC might not want to be their partner. So maybe going into the lower price point and having potentially the ability to sell more cars at a lower price point is a decent strategy for them. Would would you say that's fair or I and, and I don't mean to sound so tough, but Go ahead. I'm not sure what their strategy is. <laughs> I'm not sure what their strategy is. Yeah, right? yeah. Give it. Give us the hot takes too. You know, again, I think that 
they don't know who their customer is because at the end of the day, yeah, in its sim- in its simplest form, you do market research to understand what the market wants, and then based on that, you create features off of the customer requirements, and then you package that in an attractive way and price price it so that. X number of people that you forecast in order to be profitable will buy that thing, right? And if, if we, let's, let's make a huge, you know, I'm, I'm making a huge leap. Let's all assume that there's not any design issues, right? It looks like a decent car, you know, but if they can't sell more than 2000 units, again, we're talking about 28 million vehicles sold last year, 1.2 million EVs sold last year. And they can't sell 25,000 or 30,000 units in a year. Okay. Mm. So that tells me that to your point, James, I'm not sure what their strategy is. And yes, it seems like they're going low, um, lower end to increase the volume, right? To kind of keep the doors open, right? Because yeah. it might not make them profitable, but it'll increase their working capital so that they're able to try to break even, right? Because and they might be able to raise more money. Yeah, and and there's a good chance probably in 2020 or 2021 if they can't substantially. And I'm the bold assumption here is that they need probably 12,000 units a month in order to break even. If they can't get consistently 12,000 units a month, they're going to need a bailout in the next 12, 18 months. So let, let me. And chances yeah. are, go ahead. I was just gonna when you're done, I'm gonna read off some numbers. Chances of, are what they're. Uh, Financials. Chances are, chances are what too. You <laughs> I, left our listeners I would, hanging. I would think that because Neo has been such a such a big part of China's marketing of EVs to the rest of the world, that I don't know if they would allow them to just fold and close up shop. Bailout. So I, I would think there's a good. Yeah, I would think there'd be a good chance. So a, of, a near being a out. near bankruptcy and a bailout. That's a good segue into me telling you a few things about their financials. <laughs> okay. Okay. Twenty eighteen numbers. Okay. Four point nine billion RMB in revenue. Net income was negative eight point nine billion. Fast, and they had with a, a B. Yeah, with a B. And fat, at that point, they had at the, you know at twelve thirty one eight twenty eighteen they had eight point two or eight point three billion RMB of cash and equivalents. Fast forward six months, okay, the cash and equivalents goes down to three point three seven billion with a B as well, and revenue on a trailing twelve month basis almost doubled, went to eight point zero billion, but net income. Went down even farther to eleven point four. So you got to wonder if they can lose of roughly five billion RMB in cash in six months. You got to wonder how they're going to end the year. You know? Well, they 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 yeah. To your point, they raised more money than their current market valuation. Excuse me. They've had three sets of I, I want to say three sets of layoffs. So if if nothing, it's going to be death by a thousand cuts. Right. They essentially mm-hmm. closed their San Francisco office. Their autonomous vehicle team in San Jose has been reduced substantially. And, and they're looking all, all EV companies are looking at alternate revenue streams. So, so not, this is not just a Neo thing, but 
all they're they're probably looking at starting a ride hailing service you know just to diversify a bit right because yeah they can they can they can play a numbers game right this can be a show game because if they build vehicles and then use them for ride hailing they can technically call those vehicles sold right ah yeah so yeah. um <laughs> what what i think you're going to see is a lot of <laughs> that's over that sounds like something <laughs> So that that's that's that that sounds like a story we've heard before, <laughs> or it sounds familiar. No, but okay. So, but let, let, let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna put out a thought that I had. Okay. Right now, this is not investment advice. We say this right, but we do focus on on stocks in this show. Now, I, it's the end of the year, and I personally, I was looking at my E Trade account. And I was thinking about, okay, well, some of these, these stocks have done pretty well this year. Maybe I should take a little bit off the table, right? You know, sell a little Microsoft because they did great, right? And, and go into something that might be underpriced right now. And one, one thought that I had is that, you know, Neo is like $2 a share right now. Mm -hmm. Like they are, they are very, they're very cheap. And my thought was, was the thought that you kind of mentioned earlier. Like if Neo, if, Neo is the most well known of these kind of younger Chinese EV companies. You know, are they too prominent to fail? You know, could we ex expect an acquisition or something like that in the future where, where, you know, that it makes that no matter how much is going wrong with a company, you know, it, it might make, make that, that price, uh, look a little tasty. That's a, a thought that I had. <laughs> Do you, I'm shaking my head. What no. would you? I mean, not investment advice, but <laughs> yeah. like, well, you know, what's the what's the case for this? If I'm looking, and James, please, you know, jump in if you if you'd like. But if I'm looking at it from an investment standpoint, first of all, they don't have any assets, right? So there's nothing to sell at the end of the day. There's no plant to sell. And then second, the most valuable thing for a company would be IP. If there's no tangible assets, right? And so do, are they farther along on autonomous vehicles than anyone else? Or do they have a special feature that other OEMs could use and, and take advantage of and create a new feature or, or, you know, a prominent feature for, to attract consumers? I don't know if they have that either. So, mm. you know, I just. So what are I, they? I just think brand? that they are a brand in search of an audience. Let's, mm. let's assume that they uh, avoid a lot of mistakes because they have an established partner so the the quality and the manufacturing issues aren't as prominent as potentially some that own their own but they also lose a lot of control if they don't hit their minimum volumes right so oh here here's here's another one Elliot the next 18 months the product landscape and NEVs hybrids included you know there's going to be some hydrogen fuel cell the Toyota Mirai I think mm. these are also going to come into play now because the Chinese government has is focusing less on just battery electric vehicles. There's going to be 30, 40 products in the next 18 months where people are going to be like, wow. And Volkswagen has committed to they've they've spent so much money already on repositioning themselves because they want to get Dieselgate as far behind them as they can. Mm. They sold six million six million cars in China, right? So think of that from a mobile phone standpoint. That's the install base, right? So if they mm. can, in, in a three, four, five, six, seven year time, swap out most of those ICEs with EVs, 
their install base is huge for potential services to be sold, right? And do you, so that means, mm. do you think they're going to give that up very easily? They have seven brands here in China that they sell. So there's a ton of opportunity to sell to every Chinese consumer with one of their brands. Uh, so, and that's just one example, and, right? And the German companies, I, th- I think all three of them, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all three of the, of the big German companies have either, as they've changed the JV laws in China to allow these companies to be able to, to own majority uh, stakes, I believe all three of the big German companies have are either planning to or have already bought out their their JV partner to some extent, uh, so that they're now the majority shareholder. Are, am I am I correct here? Yeah. So the the unique situation with Daimler is that they're nine percent owned by Geely. So you know mm. they're they're going to have a Chinese tie whether they like it or not. Well, there's and also the BAIC attack. Yes, like the, yes. But that's a whole other story. They're yeah. basically fighting over control of Daimler, essentially. So there could be a potential that Daimler turns into a Chinese company. A real, real chance that happening. BMW has also moved that way to become independent, but they've also taken a more conservative uh, conservative approach towards EVs. You know, the Mini is selling an EV, but that's a niche brand, right? That sells, you know, a few hundred thousand units. So it's not really one of their main, main three series, four series, five series kind of vehicles. So they have their own challenges, right? Because Volkswagen is supremely aggressive right now with EVs in, in Europe and in China. And so when you sell 10 million vehicles worldwide, you can kind of dictate a lot of the terms in the market. So that's why all these other car companies are moving that way begrudgingly because Volkswagen has come so aggressively towards that, right? And at the end so, of the day, go ahead. But these German companies are really, they, they, they've had success in China, obviously, for a long time, but they are, they've been showing a commitment to the Chinese market and, and kind of doubling and tripling down through these, these moves that they've been making. Yes, yes, they have. One of the challenges, and this is kind of more of a, more of a long-term uh, challenge for them is that they don't have national champions on the tech side though, right? And so everything they do moving forward in China and Europe, they have to partner with, right? You know, GM, they've acquired American AI companies or autonomous vehicle companies, but in Germany, there's not a lot of prominent, there's no national Facebook, there's no national Google. And so from a tech standpoint, they're kind of at the mercy uh, depending on what country they're in of the technology sector, right? And so if they can't be leading edge in the future in technology of their vehicle for ride hailing, for ride sharing, for whatever uh, data services that they could create via all the, the data that they get, then, you know, it, it could be very challenging for them to still be prominent brands in the future. I'm talking next 10, 12, 15 years kind of thing. So, so what's your view on kind of, the that data from all these car i mean is this going to be like a real a huge market is it, are we going to see this and like how quickly could we see it and also like i don't know about you guys but i bought i bought one of these smart tvs and like i feel like i lost control of the thing you know it's like kind of annoying uh lusher i bought this lusher tv and i have like i didn't have to watch ads and now it's like you know 
it's kind of annoying. Oh, but yeah, anyway, it, are, is that same thing that happen? Is that going to happen to cars? I mean, <laughs> you know, please tell me no. I think it's blue ocean. You know, I yeah. think it's going to be dictated by the specific. And now we're talking more tech than automotive. The use case, right? Because eighty percent of the people. Uh, the, the the crazy thing is about the automotive sector, and this is coming from the Detroit guy, is that they mess with our minds. The automotive sector for a hundred years, you know, like they got us to spend fifty thousand dollars on a product that we use five percent of the time. I mean, that's yeah. crazy, right? That's just craziness, and it's incredibly inefficient. In in like look look at you look at the street. How many of these these SUVs are getting driven by one person? Even when oh, they are being driven, it's crazy, right? And you know, if you think of it from the stand, from that standpoint, it's it's nuts for us to have a car parked in the garage right now, right? But to your point, James, this is how I look at it. Okay, so the iPad or the iPhone or the Android phone, when you turn it on, what's the first symbol you see? What's the first brand you see? Right? It's either the the, the handset brand and then the Android brand or the Apple logo, right? And when you go sit in a car on the steering wheel, what do you see in the middle yeah. of that steering wheel? Now, replace that tangible steering wheel with a touchscreen in the middle of it. When that car, when that car lights up, what brand do you see? You know, like driven by Apple or driven by Android, right? That's going to own the data. That's who's going to own the data, right? Or have the most monetizing opportunities, right? Because the three of us know. Most of the time when we call a DD here, I, I don't really care what car picks me up, right? As long as it's not smelling like garlic tea or, you know, whatever, right? And so a, a lot of... That never happens. <laughs> Anyways. I, 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 what I, I, what I, I, I really want to be able to hear on the radio that guy with the raspy voice <laughs> who's, who's uh, telling like three kingdoms stories. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm talking about. Anyways, keep going. Yeah, that pain shul, yeah. So, but no, that's, uh, that's my whole point because, and this is where, um, the American car companies, I think, because there's national champions, they can work with a Google. They can potentially be acquired by Google or be acquired by Waymo because now it's a commoditized product, right? And what I, where, where I'm making my money is once you wake up. Right. It's not once I get into the car where the automotive companies really kind of create and start their design process. Right. What should happen is if I'm a car company and I want your data and monetizing it and everything, when you wake up, what are you doing? Right. That's that's where I start my user experience. And uh, the 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 two challenges and again, probably getting off a little uh, topic a little bit is that the talent isn't in house. Right. Because they don't have information architects. They don't have software developers. They don't have user experience designers. The tech companies can't manufacture cars right now. Right. And the most important thing that's happening in the United States and in China to a lesser extent is what's going to happen with that data. Right. Because we would argue that tech companies would probably know what to do with it better than the auto companies. Right. But auto companies carry Auto companies carry a ton of liability because their product can kill someone. So what they're saying is that Waymo, you want my you want my data, you take my liability, right? And they're that's why they don't want to build cars. That's one of the reasons, besides being so capital intensive, is because you know what? I don't want to carry that liability. That's not my responsibility, right? So and 
one of the offshoots of that is the insurance industry is getting upended by Tesla, right? Because now I know exactly where you're going. I know exactly how fast you're going, what light you, you, you know, you ran through. And I can, based on accurately the, the data set oh, no. of your usage, I can charge you insurance. Yeah, yeah. Based this, on that. this is called. Uh, I have to have the consequences of driving <laughs> as fast as I drive. So this, this is uh, yes. oh, This man. is called telematics. It's actually been been around for a while. I think yeah. The, uh, some some early auto insurers that got on board. I mean, there's like these little devices you can install in your car, and it'll like keep track of like how fast you stop, how fast you accelerate, and like. Based on just those yeah. two points of data and a lot of others, but just those two, those ex- putting a accelerometer, wow. you can tell if someone's a better driver or not. And so, if there's a lot of, yeah, know, the, or risky driver. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. one thing we didn't touch on that I, we, we, I, I feel like we should totally yeah, touch on. We, 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 should, we don't want to take up too much more of his yeah, time, but just, yeah, just to, it may be, maybe in closing, and and maybe you know if you don't know much about it, it's fine. But like. In terms of like electric vehicles, the thing that is kind of important, especially if you want to drive them around a lot or use them maybe more than 5% of your time in the year or whatever, is you need to have charging stations, right? And like, I guess what's, right. what's kind of the situation in China with charging stations is, you know, I don't really see that many. I see them kind of in parking garages sometimes, you know, I, you know. Sure, yeah. sure. Oh, well, they're, they're clustered, right? Because most of the EVs, the, the, the one, the premium EVs are still mainly sold in tier one and tier two, tier two cities. And so the thorough, the, the thoroughfare between Beijing and Shanghai, I think there's a number of uh, charging stations, like the quick charging stations. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. But if we're looking at from, from the standpoint of different types of powertrains, right? If we're not just looking at battery electrics because the hybrids now. And so that should be dictated. Some of that investment should be anticipated and just based on heat maps, try to figure out where you should place these charging stations. Right. But currently, I think there's the trajectory is is quite adequate for the number of vehicles. But I'd also speculate that in the next five to seven years, the education part is going to be increase substantially because there's going to be more EVs on the road, which should reduce the range anxiety aspects of, okay, my car can go 250 kilometers and my work is 19 kilometers away, but I'm scared to death of not having a full charge of my vehicle. So, and then the technology on the battery in the next 10 years should be substantial enough as well, right? Um, there's a lot of cutting edge technology where I think the charging stations, to your point, is very important, but probably not as important in the next five to seven years. And so I think it's the chicken and the egg, right? If we invest all this money on the, on the, on the public side and the private side, because it's always has to be a kind of partnership between the private sector companies and, and, and the local governments, right? In order to put charging stations. Do you really want to invest all these million and billion RMB, maybe, right? But that also depends on the the other factors like the, the battery technology and the education of the consumer. I think it's really important and the cheapest to just educate the consumer and say, you know what, you might not actually need as many charging stations as you think, right? 
especially if they're strategically placed. We know about them because the, the issue that I've heard about plenty of times is that, okay, we know exactly where the charging stations are, but they're not maintained, right? And so the, the charging point might be broken or somebody that's non, a non EV might be parked there, right? And so these are the kind of things that happen quite often in China, but need to be remedied as opposed to adding another thousand charging stations potentially. Anyways, well, thank you so much to Tula or to Lee. Sorry. To Lee, right? yeah. It's to Lee. Yeah, to Lee, managing director at Sino Auto Insights, uh, an automotive and mobility consultancy based in Beijing, also a fellow Michigander. Oh, you, you, yes, yes. Um, you're, you're from GR, right? Yeah, I'm from Grand Rapids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I grew so up in Pontiac. So. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, um, by the Silver Dome. Yes, near 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 Martin yep. Luther King Jr. Boulevard. If you guys know who Chris Rock is, but anyways, um. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, how can our listeners uh, get a hold of you if they want to follow you on LinkedIn, Twitter, anything like that? Yeah. So you can go onto my website, SinoAutoInsights.com. I write a weekly newsletter that gets you know a decent amount of circulation in the United States, Detroit, California. And a lot of different places here in China. You guys can sign up via uh, via my website or look me up to Lee on LinkedIn. And I'd love for you to follow me uh, because uh, I I get interviewed uh, quite frequently on what's currently going on in the EV sector by various media outlets as well. So thanks, guys, for having awesome. me. Awesome. Uh, hopefully, yeah. your your viewers, to- your listeners uh, learned a little bit. Yeah, thanks. For, oh, I, I learned, I learned a, lot. a lot. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> thanks, guys. Anyways, okay, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, we'll see you guys in Shanghai. Thanks again to Tu Li from Sino Auto Insights for joining us today. James, that was a pretty great, uh, great talk. I had, I had a lot of fun talking to him. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really good. I, there was one story I didn't get a chance to tell, so I'll, I'll tell it now. I was at this, at a dinner recently and, Kind of one of the things about EVs is that you get uh, kind of special license plates. They're green, and at least in Beijing and I think other you know tier one cities where they're trying to restrict the number of cars that are in the city, they restrict it by handing not handing out license plates. They're either lotteries or there's a long waiting list or you have to pay more. Um, usually, pay more is the solution. But there's a funny story where the even the EV license plates. There's a long waiting list now. So there's not, it used to be if you get an EV car, you could just get a license plate and you have it like good to go. You have a car you can drive. That's no longer the case. Now you still have to wait a long time. But there's an interesting solution and it's like the Jolly Huan fake divorce solution with buying another apartment. Supposedly, and I, I read about this online, but uh, supposedly young people are marrying older people to take over their license plates and then getting divorced. And that's, I guess, one one way to do it. It's a crazy loophole, you know, where there's a yeah. will, there's a way uh, in some sense. Yeah. yeah. So you get, I mean, it's it's one of those, uh, one of the, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's kind of, it's a, definitely an entertaining thing uh, about China is that you have all these kind of incentives that'll come and uh, yeah, people will do what they need to do to get around them. Uh, so you hear stories like this, you know, somebody marrying an old lady and then divorcing her right after you can get the, the, the license plate or, you know, just kind of these, these, these odd things. Um, 
but yeah. Anyways, anything else we should uh, anything else we should we should cover before we we let everybody go? Nope, I think that's pretty good. You know, please uh, write yeah. a review. Let us know what you think this episode. Uh, should we do more on EVs? Well, I think we're gonna have we're gonna have to have Thule back. But yeah, let us know what you think. And if you liked it, please write a review. Positive review on iTunes goes a long way to help helping support us. So I definitely want to do yeah, a uh, one thing I, that I that I had a lot of fun with this one is is um when I asked him about whether he thought I should buy Neo. Even though we're not investment device, I do want to do like uh you know, have somebody out and do kind of a buy seller hold with some of these stocks and um mm. you know, get a little more kind of hot takey with, with some of our guests. I think it's uh it can be a little fun. Anyways, yeah. Uh, make sure to, to rate us on iTunes. I agree with that. Thank you again to Peter and all the folks at uh, uh, Techno.com. And uh, we'll catch you next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye-bye now. Thanks, everyone.